Hello, and welcome to the Grove Church Podcast. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and we are so glad that you're joining us. Whether you are a member and you're just catching up on a sermon that you missed, or you're someone who's brand new, we are really glad that you are joining us. And if you are new in some way, and I know that a lot of people will do that, will listen to sermons first before they visit, I want you to know that we would love to meet you at any point. You can join us live in our services on Sunday, 9 and 1030, or our streaming service at 1030. Either way, we would love to be able to get to know you. And regardless of why you are here uh, listening to this sermon today, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. Hey, if you are new, I am Charlie, the lead pastor here, and really glad you are here with us, whether you're here online or in the crowd. Either way, we're really glad that all of you are here, and we are in the middle of a series in Ecclesiastes, but before we get to that, I want to make a little fun announcement I made it first service when these families were actually in the room. They're not here, but they DHS, which is the state organization that kind of oversees the foster care system, had an awards banquet, and two families from the Grove won awards there. The 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 area. This is the, I think it's area one. The area one family of the year was Jimmy and Kara Gulledge, and they were here first service, and that's super awesome. So they they got to be a part of that, and then. Uh, a young single woman in our church, Ava Ellis, was uh, the early promise family of the year for the whole state, which is a first-year uh, foster care family that's just killing it. And I was joking with her. It's like it's the first time they've ever given the award, and they gave it to her, which makes me think. I think they just saw how awesome she was. Let's make up awards so we can give her one. And, and I'm just so proud of her, and I'm proud of the Gulledges, and just... Um, just the light that they are shining, uh, that is getting seen not only by the awesome kids that they're getting an opportunity to love, but by the community around them, and ultimately is being recognized by the state, which is really, really cool. And so very proud of them, and just really by extension, everyone here who um, has, is making that sacrifice to love those kids well, and even to extend it out, just all of you as a whole, and just how well you guys have done and loving and supporting these families, and I just you're just making a difference in the lives of individual children, and ultimately just bringing light all over the world. So appreciate that, and really excited about them. So I know Ava's still here, so you can feel free to embarrass her. Uh, Kara Gulledge was here earlier, and she ran out of here right after the first service. She didn't want anybody else thanking her. She's a little embarrassed. But if you know them or you recognize them, just tell them congratulations. So for you guys who haven't been around, again, this is the fourth week of a series we're doing in Ecclesiastes, and, uh, and kind of the basic premise that kind of Mark helped us understand the very first week is we got this guy who's referred to as the teacher, which is very most likely King Solomon, was kind of setting out on a, an experiment or a series of experiments to try to find where can we really find uh, meaning in life. Where where is meaning and life really found? And so he's doing all of these things, and he's he pursues pleasure, and and he's like, I'm just I'm not going to say no to anything. I'm just going to keep just say yes. And he and at the end he was like, he did this for years, and it was like in the end I was like, I just feel just as empty as when I started. It was meaningless, a striving after wind, and and then he's going around and he's looking at people who have a, a, a love for money and he's like, that seems meaningless. People who are working, who, who kind of just pour themselves into their work, he's like, that's meaningless. And just kind of over and over again saying, no matter where it is, and he uses this phrase, under the sun, this world and its systems, no matter where it is, 
people are looking, when they're trying to find meaning here under the sun, it just seems like it's all meaningless. Now, as I was reflecting, and this is a, in some ways, it's a very, it feels like a very pessimistic book. Like, what, what, is this, what is he really getting at here with what feels like a lot of very heaviness? It just seems like no matter, no matter what we're doing, it just seems meaningless. And the word that came to me today, and this word has a lot of baggage, not baggage, right word, it just has a lot of meaning currently in our culture. And so you're going to think maybe I'm saying one thing, but maybe I'm saying it a little bit, but just saying something broader too. And the word that just kind of kept coming to my mind all week thinking about this is the word identity. This word identity, and I use that word identity, and you immediately associate it with, like, if I say, hey, how do you identify? And you use the word identify or identity, and we tend to now, in our current culture, in the current way that we talk, we think about in terms of sexual orientation or gender, and it finds like, this, this is my identity, this is how I identify. But I actually mean this word even in a more deep way, the same way that we use it there, but even in a broader, deeper way, which is, if I were to ask you who you are, what is your identity? What is it that defines you? This kind of unchanging part of you that this, this is who I am. Now, if I were to ask you that question, you'd be like, bro, nobody talks like that. Why would you even say that? You're so weird. Preachers freak me out. But if we're just going to it a more common way, and I'm going to introduce myself to you, and I was like, oh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Or if you're in the always enjoyable, like you're having some sort of icebreaker with a group of different people, hey, tell us, tell us two fun facts about you. Like, oh, doesn't stop, right? Who are you? Most people, a lot of people, will lead with what they do, what they do for a living. I am, I am a pastor. I am, I am the lead pastor at the Grove Church, right? A lot of people will lead with family associations. Oh, I'm married. I've been married for about 30 years. I've got three daughters. They're 25, 22, and 11. And that, oh, that's a big age gap. And then the story just kind of goes from there. And I think people oh, tend to identify themselves around, um, you know, their family. Other people very often will define themselves around something that they love, something that they love to do. Like, oh, tell, tell me a little bit about basketball. I'm a huge Razorback basketball fan. That, that's kind of who I am. I, I love movies. And lots of us, we, def, we define ourselves around what our hobbies are. And there's some people, and you never say this in casual conversation, a lot of people find identity, who they really are, around what they have, or maybe even the quantity of what they have. I am, I am, I'm, I'm well off. Where's my mom? This is a phrase my mom uses. I don't know if anybody's, my, my mom is like, we, we talking about money. Um, you know, we're from the South and she's not supposed to talk about it, but you're curious. And so like my mom will say, are they comfortable? Which I'm like, I'm like, that's a really, that's a really actually kind of deep philosophical question. I don't know their level of comfort, but if you're asking if they have money, they do, Right. You know, and so people will define themselves around how much money they have. And it's not just wealthy people doing that. Other people will find their identity. I, I'm poor. I don't have much. Right? And so we find who we are, whether we like it or not, we find our identity very often around I am the things that I love. I am the things that I do. I am the job that I have. I am the possessions or the amount of possessions I have, this is who I am. And up until this point, what we've had here with Solomon 
is him going bit by bit to kind of each one of these categories and said, this is where people seem to be finding their identity. This is, seems to be the moment or the things or the aspect of their life that say, this defines who I am. And he goes, well, let's just give this a shot. If you made your life about this, will you find meaning there? Will you find life there? And he starts again with the pleasure, with, happy, with, with pursuing pleasure. And he's like, I did it. And he's like, and it didn't stack. They weren't building on each other. It was just little small bursts that never really gave meaning. And then he talks about wealth. And then he talks about your job. And the thing is, he says, everybody I see who's kind of giving their overwhelming focus to this, you're giving it to something that can very easily be taken away. And I see it all the time. People have something and they kind of build their life around it and then it's gone. And then what do you have? I have this job. Now I don't have this job. I had this money. Now I don't have this money. And the people who are defining themselves around these things, even if they don't lose it, they're always driven for more. And so again, it takes a very pessimistic view around these three things. And so then the natural Christian inclination has been, well, then those three things must be bad. If you can't find real meaning there, what he's saying, they just must be bad things. And so then what I would say is very popular in Christian culture is to be very negative about those things, very negative about things that make you happy, very negative about work, very negative about money. But is that what he's saying? And here's the question I feel like I want us to try to answer today. If these things that these under the sun in the world systems, pleasure, money, job, if in this system I can't find real meaning there, the question is, what do I do with it? What do I do? What do we do? What do we do with pleasure, money? What am I supposed to do with them? I can't, I can't ignore them. There are things in my life that I do enjoy. Am I supposed to work really hard to not ever enjoy any things? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Hedonism that life is found in the pursuit of pleasure or Asceticism, which is you find meaning in denying yourself any pleasure. Is, if it's not this, is it necessarily this? And if it's not this or this, what am I supposed to do with it? And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today, where I believe we're going to start to see, and this is kind of how we'll finish off the last couple of weeks of like, well, the, we've talked about what it's not. Let's start to think about what it is. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in in fools. Fulfill your vow. Very interesting kind of phraseology there, as we've had all throughout this book, just the way that he words things. It's kind of like, well, okay, that's, that's interesting. So really, kind of for the first time, in this book, kind of, kind of God has entered the picture. 
He's kind of talked about what life looks like under the sun in this world and its system and meaningless and striving after when, trying to chase after something you can't grab and all this meaningless. And we've talked about, even though he hasn't necessarily explicitly come up in the chapters, like what does it mean to live above the sun? To think about what God is, the one that created all of this. And now really for the first time, he's starting to verbalize some of this. And he has some interesting things to say. He's like, when you walk into God's house, just guard your steps. You just think about, Think about what you're doing. Think about where you're going. And think about what it is you're about to say. Because what you're doing and what you're saying matters. And, he's, and, he, and he compares, like, you got these idiots, a fool, right? You got these fools coming in, offering these sacrifices, having no idea what's really going on with them. He says, don't be like that. You walk in there, you think about what this really is. You think about what's going on here. What does it mean to be in God's house? Don't just come in to do the ritual without giving any real thought about whether or not you have or have done something wrong. He says, some people come in here and they're just doing the rituals without any real thought. He says, that dude's a fool. Don't be like that. Be thinking about, think about what you're doing. Think about what's happening there. And then it says this, and it could feel like it's an admonition against prayer, which it isn't. You don't come in there, don't come in there with your mouth. Come in there, you're all talking. You got lots to say. You don't have a lot to say. You don't have a lot to say. You live down here where nothing makes sense and there is no meaning, and God lives up here. You don't come in here with your mouth. You don't come into God's house telling God how things are. You don't come into God's house telling him the way things should be. You don't come to tell God the way the world should work or does work. You don't come to him telling him what you think is best. You come here to hear what he has to say. So you come in here and you think about the things that you're doing. And then be measured in the things that you say because it really, what is your input compared to God's input? And so big picture, the thing that I would like for us to kind of uh, to, to, to take away from this is, the, is, is this very simple phrase. Let's, let's make sure that we put first things, let's make sure we put first things first. When I think about what I'm supposed to do with kind of these aspects of life, life under the sun, no matter what happens, I've still got to live life down here and I've got all these different things. What am I, what am I supposed to do with it? Well, I need to make sure that I've got the right priorities, the right things in the right order. And it starts with the first thing, which is I need to make sure I've got God in his proper place in my life. And so to have him in my proper place in my life means when I enter his presence, whether it be at church, in his house, so to speak, or whether this is reflecting with him in the morning, a time of prayer, I've got some big decision that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to figure some things out and I want to hear and, 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 and I want to connect with God about this. Like I need to make sure I put that first. And I need to make sure that I recognize the hierarchy between him and me. And when I'm asked, when I, I need to be asking questions rather than giving answers. And what he's saying, like, well, you talk less. Who decides what is or isn't appropriate? Who decides whether, whether or not something does or doesn't have meaning? Whether you should or shouldn't do it? What, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do then with pleasure and money and work. Well, who's going to tell you? You need to make sure that in you're thinking about 
where real meaning and purpose in life are found, that you are giving God the first and best opportunity to speak into it. Because some of us, we do. We kind of we come in here. I'm, just, I'm here to do the ritual. I joke about it sometimes on a snowy day or on a chime change day. Oh, you get two points today in your notebook. Be sure to make sure you get your two points, right? You get here. Oh, you got here on time. You get an extra point for coming on time or these kinds of things. But I think there's some of us here that even though we don't really carry that notebook, I think in our hearts we do carry the notebook. I'm here to, I'm here to do the task. I'm here because it's a ritual. I'm here to get the points. But I'm not really here to think about it. And I think that, that there are people that come here, and not just here, but in churches everywhere, not necessarily to hear what God has to say about something, but to have some sort of back and forth about it. I think, ah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with God. I'm like, oh, we argue with God all the time. You know, if I were to say to you on a quiz, theological quiz time, is God the one that determines whether or not something is good or not, moral or not, appropriate or not? Yo, yes. Like, check. And then we'll just use the two biggest ones. When we hear what the Bible has to, ha- says, has to say about what are the appropriate boundaries for sex and sexuality, or what are the appropriate boundaries and the appropriate ways to use our money, we hear what God has to say, and like, well, okay. Well, that's real interesting, but have you considered all of these other things that are actually really important to me? And actually, our culture has quite a few things to say about both of those topics. And I need to take what God has to say and kind of mix it in here. And then we'll come up, then I'll be able to come up with something that feels right to me. If we're doing that, really about two of the most significant aspects of kind of the way that our life works, we're really doing it about everything. If I've got an idea, God needs to take that into consideration. If we, if we think we've got a better idea, God needs to make sure he's taking that into consideration. And what Solomon is saying is like, I've, 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 I've tried that. I've tried us trying to do things the way we think it should be, and it doesn't work. And you think, man, that was 3,000 years ago. But I'm telling you, if you, did, if you, if you haven't been here, go, go and read those first few chapters about what it is he thinks, what he says, and what he's trying to see, and what he's saying about the way people try to find meaning in life. And you would, you would think to yourself, this book was actually written last month. Not much has changed in 3,000 years about where it is we think hope and life and meaning can be found. And he says, when you try it, you can't find it. Why don't you let God speak into it? So what is the right way to deal with money? What is the right way to deal with what brings me pleasure? What is the right way for me to deal with work and kind of accomplishment and those kinds of things. First things first, let's get let's let God have his opportunity to speak. We continue on verse 10. He's going to start talking about kind of kind of a bit of a recap, I think, of what he has already said to kind of help us remember verse 10 chapter 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. 
Everyone comes naked from their mother's wound, and and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil, so they can that they can carry in their hands. So we kind of got these sum, these summaries here. It's like if you love money, if you're trying to find money there, if you're trying to find life with money, you're going to find that you never are going to feel like you have enough. You're never going to be satisfied. And it's like how meaningless it is to try to find that, find life and meaning with money because no matter how much you have, you wish you had more. And if you get more and more stuff, what you're going to do is you're just going to attract more and more people. And so the more people that you attract who feel like that they need more and some of what you have, the more you have to work to deal with them. But the more you do with that, the more people are going to come. And meanwhile, everybody but you is enjoying what you have. He says, that doesn't make any sense. And then he says this, which is really important. You need to hear it. If you were here last week, we, we, he said something similar. We'll say it this week. I confess being a, uh, avid. I didn't confess. I proclaimed boldly with, with great conviction and, and admir, and, and, you know, enthusiasm, I didn't confess it, that I love a good nap. He says right here, the sleep of a laborer is sweet. I want to rest is good. But that's not what the striving for work or striving for money, that's not what it does. The rich, they can't sleep. And then I see people, they got all this money and all this stuff, and then something that by no fault of their own, it's all gone. And so you put all your hope in this thing, and then boom, one day it's all gone. What is, what is that? If, if, if you're defined by it, and you can lose it by no, by no fault of your own, you probably shouldn't define yourself by it. And then he says the thing, you know, you may have thought this was a, a new expression. You can't take it with you. It's at least this old. You got here, you came here naked, and you're not leaving here with anything more than that. You come here with nothing, you leave with nothing. And so he wants to make sure that we understand that we need to put the first things first. We need to let God have his speak. He he gets to speak first about what the appropriate place for each one of these things are. And then ultimately, this is kind of a newer expression. You want, you want to keep them in their lane. Money, stuff, work, pleasure. I want them to do what they're supposed to do. They have, a, they have a role to play in my life. Money has a role to play. It allows me to, uh, to buy goods and services that allow me to survive. And I have to work to get that money. So I work. That's appropriate. I, I work. I get the money. And then I have the money and I get the things that I need. And then I live my life. And, and they, they have a role to play. But too often we give it too, too big of a role. A role that it can't play. It can't bring meaning. It can't bring life. It can't bring hope. You'll never experience peace. You'll never have joy. And so when I give it too large of a place, I'm asking it to do more than it's capable of doing. But when I allow it to kind of just be what it's supposed to be, money is a tool. Work is, is an opportunity that allows me then to have the things that I get. Okay, and, and pleasure is just, it's not what defines me, but every now and then I get to do things and I enjoy them and that's it. And I'm like, oh, that was fun. And then, and then that's it. I, I just allow them to be what they are. I'm not, you know, I, I, I can be like this sometimes where I'm always looking forward to, the, we, got, we got a vacation coming in a couple of weeks, we got a vacation coming, we got a trip coming in a couple of weeks, it's going to be great, we're going to be great, it's a great vacation, and, and I think about it. And then, I don't know, you're taking actual people with you on the vacation, right? 
And, and, and I love them, the, the, the four people that I love more than anything in the world, but it is not, it's not going to go perfect and people don't appreciate things the way that they should. And some, you want this, you wanted this to happen, but it didn't end up being the weather wasn't good, like whatever. And you're like, and you put all your heart into it. And like, then it always disappoints. And like, I'm expecting like this one week vacation to kind of just be full of like how much life there's, it's going to keep being what it always is. Just someplace different. But it's just like, hey, this is something fun we get to do, and I can keep it, I need to keep it small. I don't know how many of you are like that. Like, you've got some big event coming up, some big vacation or something, and it becomes really, really big, and it can never, and it always lets you down. What if I just let it be small? Hey, we're going to go do something fun next week. Hey, I'm going to get to spend some time with some people tomorrow, and I'm, I'm going to let it be small. I don't, I don't, it doesn't have to be everything. Because when we make it everything, it becomes meaningless. And so this whole book is kind of this existential crisis of sorts that Solomon is having around where meaning in real life can be found. And I don't, and I don't, and I don't know. And it just seems like wherever I look, I just see people doing the same things over and over again. And they're looking for life and they just can't find it. And yeah, I've already confessed this. I, re- I really like movies. And, and I was thinking about this. It's kind of an older movie. And, um, and, and the main character here has a very similar sort of crisis. And this kind of came to me. And it's like the opening scene really is this person just kind of pouring out their heart about the relative meaningless of everything that they see around them. And I've got the kind of the quote here. It's from the very beginning of the movie. Little town. It's a quiet village. Every day like the one before. Little town full of little people waking up to say. It's a French movie. Bonjour. There goes the baker with his tray like always. The same old bread and rolls to sell. Every morning just the same. Since the morning that we came to this poor provincial town. It's Beauty and the Beast, for those of you guys who were catching up with it, right? And we're not necessarily looking to her for answers, because there's a lot of weird things that happen to her where she seems to find life, and Stockholm Syndrome is involved, and it's just like she's a prisoner, and she falls in love with her captor. It's all kind of weird. But you see, you see this thing there, right? It's just like, I just look around, and I see these people, they're just spinning. They're just spinning, and she's got, there's got to be more to this than what I see in my little small town. I came from a little small town. I felt the same thing. There's got to be, there's got to be more to life than whatever is in this small town. Now you got the wealthiest person alive. And he's like, he's not limited by the small town. Have the ability for everything. And there's got to be more to this than this life. And so he comes to us and he says, listen, you need, to put, you, need to put, you need to put God in his proper place. You need to let God be the one that orchestrates this. You keep this. You keep these things in their proper lane. And he finishes with this. Well, then what? Like, then what? What is, what is the big idea here then? What am I supposed to do? Verse 18. This is what I've observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. 
Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I alluded to this a couple weeks ago, and here it is, where he says, hey man, I look around and it seems like there's anything better you could possibly do than to just enjoy what you have. Which, which is such a strange thing when you think about the way that Christian culture thinks about life. It can't be what he means. And I've seen a lot of people do a lot of kind of mental and theological gymnastics to take what seems like a very straightforward statement that the author is making here and to make it to mean something else than what he's saying. It can't possibly mean that. Because that's bad, right? I mean, like, you can't just, you can't just, you're not supposed to just enjoy life. That, 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 that can't be it. But the reality of it is, like, you allow God, put God first, allow him to kind of order the things of your life, keep these things in their lane, and then, yeah, just enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy it. Again, this isn't license to do whatever you want. He already tried that. License and you doing whatever you want absolutely doesn't work. I don't just get to pursue pleasure, whatever I think brings me pleasure. God says, hey, this may, you may think this is pleasurable, but it's actually doing you damage. Stay away from that. Do these things. Don't, don't do, don't do any of these things. Only do these things. Well, I want to enjoy the money I have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But there's a couple of things you need to make sure you understand. Love of money will kill you. You need to live a life of gratitude, recognizing that everything that you have comes from me. And because of that, I want the first portion, the first tenth of it, I want it back. And you need to be a wise, you need to be wise, you need to be a saver, you need, you need to not live beyond your means. And he puts all these things like, if you want to have money and deal with it appropriate, follow all these rules. That'll help you keep it in its lane. And then, yeah, sure, enjoy it. Don't be defined by your work. But work is not an evil thing. It was given to Adam before any sin was in the world. Toil is ridiculous, but a job, that was part, of, was part of the original design. But then he immediately tells Adam about a cycle of rest and how important rest is. So you need to make sure that you're keeping that in balance, so you're not striving for something more than what it needs to be, and you need to be resting. That is part of life. It's actually sweet. You need to keep your money under control. You need to recognize everything where it came from. You need to keep these things out of bounds. I'm going to let God have his way and to speak into the way life is supposed to be. It allows me to keep things in their lane. Then I can just enjoy it. This isn't just do whatever you want. We have this idea, this hedonism. Like I just, I I can find pleasure here. Well, if it's not that, then I need to deny myself. No. I need to let God tell me where life is. I need to let God tell me what the boundaries are, the appropriate uses, the appropriate understandings. I need to let him speak rather than the striving I have. I need more money. I need to work harder. I need to do more. And, 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 you, and you, you're trying to catch wind. And then it says, then you have this thing in your brain. And I have this sometimes. I woke up this morning at 4.45 for no good reason. And my brain was like, have you thought about your sermon? I'm like, yeah, I got notes already. 
Well, have you thought about this? Yes. Have you thought about this? Yes. Well, what if this bad thing happens? What if this? 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 And my brain is trying to like, we, we, ought, we haven't caught all the wind yet. So then I'm up. I'm up. Because my heart can't sleep. Because there's something else I got to go get. There's something else I got to go do. And we're striving after something that's just not there. But when I learn about rest, I learn about God as the provider of everything. And I let God tell me what is or is not appropriate. Then I can be at peace. And if there's anything that I think that this world is desperately striving for, is it is fruitlessly chasing after wind all the time. They never have enough. I can never be at peace. I can never feel good about it. But if it were possible to be at peace with the life that I have, without worrying about the life that you have, without worrying about a life that I wish I had, I can be at peace with the life I currently have. If we could figure out how to do that, that would sell. And this is what God is telling us. Allow him to draw the boundaries. Keep these things in their place. And then choose to enjoy what God has given you. And I feel I must, I feel, I feel compelled that if we're going to talk about this, that I must say that the only way that any of this is possible is through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that he made to, that I could be forgiven of my sins, be restored into a relationship with God, which then allows me to let, be able to even to hear his voice, to hear what he has to say, to allow me to be able to live according to his fence. I can do that because of what Jesus has done in my life to bring me back to God. And because of what Jesus Christ did for me, I can be reconciled to God and now I can hear from him. I can put him first. I can, I can learn and understand and know the appropriate place for all of these complicated things in my life where people just seem to be struggling. He can help me keep them in their lane. And that because I've trusted God, because I've put these things into perspective, I'm not asking them to do more than they can. Then I can, with peace, enjoy the life that God has given me. Let me pray. Thanks again for joining us on our sermon podcast. And you can learn more about us at thegrovechurch.org. And if you go to thegrovechurch.org slash connect, there's a form you could fill out. Just let us know that you've been listening. And if you want to dig deeper on some of these topics that we cover in our sermon podcast or just in other issues of dealing with culture or theology, those kinds of things, uh, you can check out our Cultivate podcast. It's on the same feed, um, however you found this particular podcast. So again, this is Charlie, the lead pastor at The Grove, and thank you so much for joining us.